Hi, I'm Shane Robertson, and welcome to the Maysville Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Here at Maysville, we want to practice loving God, loving others, and serving the world. I trust this sermon will be an encouragement to you as it challenges your heart and strengthens your walk of faith. Now, grab your Bibles as we get ready to hear from the Word of God. Well, Pastor Shane has already entitled this message, and I'm thankful for that. Saul's Confession. I just want to add a word to it. Saul's Unpopular Confession. And I pray that uh, the Lord would work in your heart as we make our way through that. And I pray he would firm some things up in your heart and soul about the person of Jesus. And if you've um, been wondering or thinking about the person of Jesus, I pray the Word of God would be revealed to you this morning. I I do want to ask you this question who is Jesus? Jesus asked that question um, of his disciples. You remember in Matthew 16, he takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, which that location is going to pop up here in this narrative in Acts chapter 9. We'll start in about verse 19. He takes his disciples there, and he asks them, what do people say about me? Who do they say that I am? And then he says, who do you say that I am? I find it interesting that when Saul was knocked off his horse, what was the first thing he said? Lord, who are you? And then we're going to pick up in uh, verse 19 and 20, and we have the first words off of Saul's lips after he's knocked off his horse. And it's no accident that uh, Luke records for us the first question and the first thing he said, the first answer to that question. Well, really the question is today, who do we say Jesus is? Uh, The second question I want us to address today is who is it uh, people say Jesus is outside of these four walls? What do most people say about Jesus in America today? What do most people believe about the person of Jesus outside of Orthodox Christianity? Thirdly, and most importantly, I want us to look today, what does the Bible say about the person of Jesus and who Jesus is? And so let's dive into it in Acts chapter 9, verse 19, thinking about the person of Jesus. Here we pick up the narrative. Ananias has already come, and he has went to Judas' house where Saul was in the city of Damascus. He had been blinded, as you remember, knocked off his horse, and scales had fallen from his eyes. He had been baptized, received the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, so when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus, verse 20, immediately, immediately. He preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelled in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 23, Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. This is going to be a reoccurring theme in Saul's life. Verse 24, But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. One kind of question in verse 24 is, Who is the they that watched the gates to kill him? Verse 25, Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. Now, any romantic thoughts you have about this getaway, we will uh, dispel here in just a moment. In verse 26, And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he goes to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. 
But Barnabas, thank God for friends like Barnabas, took him and brought him to the apostles. He declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. That in verse 28 means just going house to house. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed among the Hellenists. And here it is again. But they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Then the churches throughout all of Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. And so what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to dive into the text uh, again and get us some context and a uh, better uh, image in our mind of, of the scenario here. And then I want to dive in into the doctrine, the theology of the person of Jesus and uh, directly related to what Saul says about him here in Acts chapter 9. And so as, as we get into verse 20, he's at Damascus. Uh, remember, he's gone to Damascus with papers to have Christians in prison and, and with the intent to kill them. He has went to silence this new movement of those following Jesus. So he's went there with that intent. He's knocked off his horse, and now he stands up. Can you imagine this scene? He stands up. What do you think those Jews in that Damascus synagogue expected him to say? And then what does he say? He says that he is the Son of God. And it says they were amazed because he said this, this Greek word is the word we get our word ecstatic from. But this is not a positive sense. They were not happy with what he was saying, right? And we see that in the context. But they are amazed. The wow factor. And, and they said, did not he come here to kill the Christians? Did he not come here to imprison them? Um, and bring them to the high priest? But what had happened? Paul had met the real high priest, hadn't he? He had met the uh, high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews tells us the uh, one who come from the priesthood that is eternal and kingly, namely Jesus Christ. In verse 22, Saul increased all the more. And what did he do while he was in Damascus with the Jews? He was proving that Jesus is the Christ. That word proving means to take um, the word pictures, take different yarns, different colors, and to mesh them together to make to make uh, some kind of fabric, clothing, something of that nature. And what's he doing? He's taking Scripture and he's pointing that Jesus is the Christ. Something will be crucial, and I, I believe you all understand this. It's just um, needs thrown out there. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is a title. Christ is Messiah. We'll dive into that more here in just a minute. But between verse 22 and 23, you, and it says, Now after many days were passed. In verse 23, there's a three-year period there. Chris, where are you getting that? Galatians chapter 1. At the end of Galatians chapter 1 into chapter 2 of Galatians, we won't go there now, you write it down. Paul says he left Damascus, went to Arabia for three years, and came back. Well, did he say what he did in Arabia? Yeah, he said he spent time with God, learning, spending time with the Scriptures. Some people said he went there with the Old Testament, come back with the 13 letters he's going to write in his heart and in his head. Surely this is true. But what did, what did he start doing in verse 20? He immediately started telling people about Jesus, that he is the Son of God, the Messiah. I imagine that's exactly what he did all throughout Arabia. And, and just for um, clarifying, Damascus was not a Jewish city. There was Jews there, there's Jews and there's a Jewish synagogue, there's a Jewish community, but Damascus was an Arab um, town. Um, the, um, 
uh, yes, they, so it was not a Jewish town. It was um, Arabs, mostly. And um, we're going to see, is if you go to Galatians, or if you went to 2 Corinthians 11, uh, verse 32, that's a good reference where he talks about um, the king of the Arabs was after to kill Paul. What did he do while he was in Arabia? He's preaching the gospel, apparently. And I imagine, and 2 Corinthians 11 says, the army from the king was after Saul to capture him. So that's why I brought up in verse 24, who is it that has surrounded Damascus to capture Saul? Well, on the inside, we know here the Jews want to kill him. On the outside, the, the king's got his army out there to capture him, or a part of his army to capture Saul. And so Saul's in a predicament here. He's made the king of the Arabs mad because he's been preaching the gospel all over uh, Arabia, and now he's in Damascus, and the king is going to capture him, and now the Jews want to kill him. <laughs> in a little time, he's made a lot of havoc. And so here they are. And so in verse 25, he escapes by being put in a basket outside the city wall into water that was there at Damascus. Now, I can imagine he's in this room with, his, with a few Christians there. And that basket is not a regular clothes basket or like the basket Moses got put in and they went down the river. You know, that, that's not the basket. This is a waste basket. All historians, this is how they get their waste out of this apartment, out of this um, room that's uh, this house that's on this big wall. That's how they get the waste out. Can you imagine the scene? Hey, Saul, look. You got to do it, man. If you want to live, you got to get in this waste basket and you're going to have to let you down. I can imagine him. Oh, all right, here we go. So that's exactly what they do. They put him in this waste basket. He escapes. Uh, and in verse 26, he makes his way to Jerusalem. And there it says he tried to join the disciples. And the term uh, tried there is past tense, but is also progressive. Uh, good translation. He was trying. He had made attempts to join them. And we see that because what? They did not let him because they were afraid. The Trojan horse, right? Uh, that story would have been prevalent around this time. Wait a minute. He's trying to do the same thing to us. His goal was what? To kill and silence the Christians. If he gets around the main apostles, the leaders of this movement, he'll kill us. And then we all, we, there will be nobody to lead this movement on. We can't let him in here. No way. They're all scared, of course, in a corner. And don't you thank God for those Christians who have courage and go to those of us who are scared and say, come on, get up. Let's go do this thing. And that's Barnabas. Look at him, verse 27. Barnabas says, I saw him in Damascus. He was there preaching boldly. The Lord appeared to him. And he, in fact, is a disciple. He is an, um, and going to be announced as an apostle, seeing Jesus face to face. Verse 29, you see, um, he's boldly speaking the Lord Jesus, house to house. Jerusalem being a big city, bunch of homes. He's going house to house, sharing the gospel. And it says he stood against the Hellenists. Now, why is that important? Well, if you remember in um, Acts before, Stephen was debating against the who? The Hellenists. Who were they? Remember, they were the Jews. Um, many in the Sanhedrin were Hellenists. They did not follow the Jewish custom of life all the way. They looked more Greekish, but their beliefs were Jewish beliefs. They were part of Judaism. They held to that faith and that belief, but they didn't live like Jews as far as custom and wares and, and those kind of things in everyday life. And the, that's where Saul came from. That's what kind of Jew Saul was. And so, remember Stephen? Saul is there when Stephen is debating with um, Stephen and the other people. Saul was there when he saw that. And he picks up the mantle of Stephen, and he starts to proclaim what? That Jesus is the Son of God. And what do they want to do again? They want to kill him. You know, I got to thinking, um, can you imagine Paul being saved? Can you imagine being those apostles thinking, man, that guy got saved, he's for real? Man, what a great person to be on our team. 
But then after he got on the team, uh, now everybody wants to kill, everybody wants to kill the Christians. So think about it like this: uh, before Saul got saved and born again on the road to Damascus, really remember the Jews they were the Christians were kicked out of Jerusalem, right? So they're scattered abroad. This part in Acts. And all the Jewish people, are, you know, the Sanhedrin, they're in Jerusalem. They're fine. They got the Christians out of Jerusalem. So the Christians are doing their own thing all over um, those parts. Well, then there's one person who really wants to make sure everybody else in the world doesn't know about Jesus. And who is that? That's Saul. Well, Saul gets saved. And you think, oh, yeah, good. He's on our team. Well, maybe not so much because Saul goes, makes the king of Arabia mad. He goes, makes the Hellenists mad again, the Sanhedrin mad again. And now everybody wants to kill the Christians. Good job, Saul. Glad to have you on the team, man. It's awesome. So, uh, but what we want to focus on today is really these first couple verses about what was Saul's confession. And as I imagine this scene, if you'll go back with me to this first scene, he stands up in Damascus. The Bible says immediately to preach Christ in the synagogue. So he's in this Jewish synagogue. And you imagine him to say what? You know, hey, this is how you find Christians. Here's how you identify them. Here's how we're going to rally them up. I'm going to take them in handcuffs. I mean, he's going to give all the details how to do that, right? That's, you expect that's what he's going to say. I, but he stands up and says what? Jesus is the Son of God. I imagine it being, what would be a, a close example, but not as good, would be, imagine being at a Democratic presidential rally, right? And Kamala Harris is going to get up, and she's going to announce Joe Biden is about to speak. And imagine Kamala Harris getting up saying, guys, I've been thinking about this one, expecting her to introduce Joe Biden to speak, and she says, you know what, I've been thinking about this. I think we should vote for Trump, actually. <laughs> Could you imagine what kind of scene that would be at a Democratic rally? Could you imagine? Well, much more so, these people who hate Christians, who are wanting to help Saul, imprison them, and Catherine gets up and says, Jesus is the Son of God. Imagine the moment there. It's no amazement that they want to kill him. But I want us to think a little bit about the Son of God. So there's the amazement factor and what he said and who he is, but there's also the amazement factor, the wow factor, because of the theological, theological content in which he's just quoted. By the way, where it says he is the Son of God, that's the only time throughout the book of Acts that Jesus is referred to. This title, the Son of God, is given to Jesus. The only time. So this is important. So what was it? What did those people in, that in, in Damascus, when he used the term son of God, what went through their head? What were they thinking? Well, we have to look in the Old Testament to think about this for a little bit. Their understanding of the son of God. It started out in Exodus that the whole nation of Israel were the sons of God. In Exodus 4, God says, I called um, Israel uh, my son as I brought them out of Egypt. So in Exodus 4, they are the whole nation is the son of God. Well, then you get to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when he is called to be king. Um, he is told that, David, you will be my son and I will be your God. And so David becomes the son of God. And then his lineage becomes the children of God, the sons of God. That's why in Daniel, um, there's great remorse at the very beginning of Daniel chapter 1 where it says that Nebuchadnezzar took the sons of God uh, away to exile, to Babylon. Why? This is the lineage of David. And then as the Old Testament progresses, uh, the Psalms keep pointing back to a Messiah who is a son of David, uh, but who is a son of God. 
So all this, so they have, uh, by the time Jesus comes on the scene, the Jewish idea of the Messiah is the Son of God. Messiah, the Son of God. Do you remember what the high priest asked Jesus when he was uh, about to be crucified? He says, are you the Messiah? The son, he didn't want to say God. He didn't want to use God's name. So he said, are you the Messiah? the Son of the Blessed One. Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? See, it was one title in one to the Jewish mind. And so they have all that wrapped up. And so they're looking for this Messiah, the Son of God. But why did they miss it? Why had Saul not believed before this that Jesus was uh, logically? What had the Sanhedrin, why they rejected Jesus? Why had really the apostles, Peter and Judas and the other, why had they rejected Jesus as this Messiah, Son of God? What were they looking for? They were looking for a Son of David Messiah who would come in, kick Rome out of Jerusalem, and reinstate the Israel kingdom like David and Solomon had, and that they would be the superpower once again. That's the kind of Messiah that they were looking for. But they missed it, didn't they? They missed it. I love in Luke chapter 24, you remember the story about uh, the two men who had left Jerusalem after uh, the Passover and were making their way home to Emmaus? And this man appears to him and he says, why are you so sad? And the two said, oh, didn't you hear Jesus of Nazareth? They crucified him, they killed him. We thought he was the Messiah, our hope, but they killed him. He didn't run the Romans out. Not at all. They killed him. And then this figure, who we know to be Jesus, looks at him and he says, foolishness. How foolish you are. How slow of heart to understanding. Did you not read all of Moses and the prophet? How the Messiah must suffer and then be glorified? How did you miss that part? How did you miss Isaiah 53? How did you miss all of the Old Testament that pointed to a Messiah who was a suffering servant? Uh, didn't you love it in um, the couple chapters when Pastor Shane preached on the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip runs to the chariot? He's been to Jerusalem. He tried the Jewish religion out. didn't work for him. He's going back home distraught. And he's, he's got an Isaiah scroll. And it's open to what we call Isaiah 53. And Philip runs to the chariot and he goes, hey, man, what are you doing? He said, I'm trying to read Isaiah 53 and I can't understand it. Can you tell me who Isaiah 53 is about? And Philip said, I'm so glad you asked. It's about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was put upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And uh, I love it how the Son of God is developed in the Gospels. One of the Gospels that fascinates me how it's developed, and this title particularly, is the Gospel of Mark. Do you know in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is called the Son of God only twice? At the beginning of the Gospel and at the end. So it's a key understanding in theology in the Gospel of Mark, but it's only mentioned twice, beginning and end. And at the very beginning, do you know who acknowledges Jesus as the Son of God? It's God the Father. He looks at his baptism and he speaks and he says, This is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. And then at the rest of the Mark's Gospel, nobody understands that Jesus is the Son of God. Every time somebody starts to understand it, what does Jesus do? Don't be quiet. Don't tell nobody. Shh, stop. Stop talking. Don't you? Scholars have wondered why to do that. Well, you get to the very end of the Gospel, and there's one person who understands who the Messiah is and who the Son of God is. It's the most unlike, it's not a disciple, it's not a religious leader, it's not one of the apostles. It's the most unlikely character in all of the Gospel of Mark. It's at the cross where Jesus is, is crucified, where he's breathed his last breath. It's a Roman centurion soldier. He looks up at Jesus and he says, Surely 
this was the Son of God. He got it. What did he understand that the Sanhedrin missed? What did he understand that Saul had missed up to now? What did he understand that all the disciples missed while they walked with Jesus? That Jesus came to be the suffering servant. That he didn't come to expel Rome and uplift the Jewish kingdom. He came to conquer, not like that, he came to conquer hell, sin, death, and the grave. And the way to do that was not to kick Rome out. It was he had to be the sacrifice. The only way he could be the sacrifice for sins was he had to be the Son of God. I love the way uh, John's gospel lays it out, and it helps us understand the Son of God terminology in, in, in truth. He starts out his gospel, and we'll understand what liberals do with John chapter 1 here in just a minute. But John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then down in verse 14, he says, The Word became flesh. Jesus dwelt among us. What's he saying? In the beginning, this Word was God. God dwelt among us in the person of Jesus. So here's the first big point about Jesus being the Son of God. One, he's the suffering servant. Number two, it means that Jesus is God. C.S. Lewis put it like this, From birds comes birds, from foxes come foxes, from God comes God. Who is Jesus? He's the Son of God. Namely, he came from God. He is deity. He is divine. John 1.1. And all throughout the New Testament is going to declare that Jesus is divine. Jesus is God. That's number one. The second thing is Jesus is not God the Father. Get this straight in our minds. Jesus is God. But Jesus is not God the Father. In the Trinity, there are, there's one essence, there's one nature, but there's three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so understand that the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father. Okay, And so that's what we understand, because he's the Son of God. He's not God the Father, he is the Son of God. And so a lot of controversy has been on, on the verse John 3.16, because uh, some confusion could enter your mind where it says, God so loved the world that he gave... His only begotten Son. In the early church, in about year 300, there's a false teacher that emerges in the church. His name is Arius. And he starts teaching that because of John 3.16, that Jesus was begotten. That when Jesus was born, that was the first time he came into existence. That he was made by the Father. And as Christians heard this teaching and it got around, the whole church said, no, that, that, that's not what we believe the Bible says. They had an ecumenical council called the Council of Nicaea in 325. And the, what the council, um, the result of it was they condemned what Arius was teaching as heresy, that the Son was created, that he was made by the Father. Modern Arians today are Jehovah's Witnesses. Mormons, those are modern-day Arians, um, heresy here that is in church history. And, and the way the Nicene Creed reads is that Jesus is the Son of God, co-eternal and co-substance with the Father. And it, it reads like this, Jesus is the only begotten, but not made. Only begotten, but not made. See, the, the, the confusion came in. The Arius didn't understand John 3.16. He didn't understand the term only begotten. Begotten, you have to understand the Old Testament. You have to go there to understand the meaning. Uh, Isaac, do you remember Isaac, Abraham's son? Isaac is referred to in the Old Testament as Abraham's only begotten son. But did Abraham, how many, how many sons did Abraham have? Two, right? He had two. What did it mean that he was only begotten? David is called the only begotten son of Jesse. David had many brothers. 
What does that mean, only begotten? The term is monogenesis. What does it mean? One of a kind. It means unique. It means David was unique to Jesse. It means Isaac was the son of promise. He was a unique son to Abraham. What does it mean that Jesus is the only begotten son of God? It means the quality of his person. It means who he is. The uniqueness of this son is that the New Testament argues that he is God. He is the very nature God. And he added human uh, humanity to the divinity in the incarnation. And so that's what we believe about the Son of God. You say, why is this important? Why is this a big deal? Well, um, there's a question, and I know time change. I know thinking caps here for just a minute, okay? But you got an extra hour of sleep, so this is good. Here's a question that's thrown out a lot of times, right? To Christians. You Christians believe that um, the consequence of sin is eternal death in a place the Bible calls hell. You believe this, right? Eter eternal death. But you say that Jesus paid that penalty in a temporal time 2,000 years ago, anywhere between three to six hours when Jesus hung on a cross, that in a temporal amount of time, he paid for an eternities of people's sins. And we do believe that. And say, well, how? How can you believe that? Temporal amount of time, but eternal punishment. How can you believe that happened? The answer is this. It's who Jesus is. Only because Jesus is God can God take eternal wrath in a temporal time and and pay the consequence of it. You get this, if Jesus is not God, you and I are still lost in our sins. You say, how? Well, if Jesus is not from God, then he's from Adam. And the Bible says all that are in Adam are born into sin. And if Jesus is born into sin, he can only pay for his own sin. He can't pay for anyone else's. But because he is from God, because he is God, he can carry the sins and they can, others can be placed upon him and he can pay the penalty for those sins. That's the gospel. That's why the person of Jesus Christ is so important. He is the only begotten, but not made. He is the eternal Son of God. And I, I love it in, down in verse 22 where it says that Paul proved to them. What was Paul putting all together? Just like Jesus was on the road to Emmaus. He's putting all the Old Testament together. Hey, guys, don't you remember how Abraham was going to uh, offer up Isaac? To, on Mount Moriah. Do you remember that story? I could imagine he was talking to the synagogue. Do you remember the story when Abraham was told by God to offer Isaac up and they're taking, he's taking Isaac and Isaac's got the wood and they're taking it up to Mount Moriah and Isaac says, where's the sacrifice? What does Abraham keep saying? God will provide. But in the back of his head, he's thinking, you're it, guy. God provided you. I got to sacrifice you. He gets to the top, Mount Moriah, makes that altar, puts Isaac on the altar, and by this time, Isaac gets what's going on, right? Wait a minute, it's me. But he submits. He's going to do what his father tells him to do. It's on the altar. Abraham raises the knife to offer his son as sacrifice. The angel of the Lord stops him, don't he? Right in time, says, stop! Abraham, you will not offer your son here. I did provide a sacrifice. It's a ram caught in a thicket. What is essentially what we know by the whole of Scripture God is saying, Abraham, you will not sacrifice your only begotten son. I will sacrifice my only begotten son on that same mountain. And he was caught in a thicket with a crown of thorns. And it was Jesus. Uh, and all these other, the Passover lamb, all these things that pointed to the suffering servant, that Jesus, the eternal son of God, would take the sins of the world and pay the penalty for those sins. So you, you see, I would call it the unpopular confession that Jesus is the Son of God. What do you mean unpopular? 
Well, the Jews want to kill him in Damascus. Him, I mean, he has to flee because of them and the Arabian Nights that surrounded the place. He gets to Jerusalem, says the same thing. They try to kill him there, and I don't want to ruin the rest of the book of Acts for you, but if you go ahead and read, everywhere he goes, they try to kill him there too. I mean, it's, a, it's an ongoing thing you're going to see in Paul's life. <laughs> and Ananias told him that. was going. How would you like to be Ananias, by the way? I was thinking about that when Pastor Shane was preaching last week. How would you like to have the job? Hey, uh, you know, Andrew, after new Christians that accept Jesus, Andrew, we need you to go talk to them and tell them, hey, listen, glad you accepted Jesus, but you're going to have a lot of suffering in your life, okay? Good job. Be ready. But it's true, though, ain't it? I mean, it really is true for Christians, ain't it? But even more true for Saul is Ananias had to go lay his hands on him and tell him, hey, man, you're going to have to suffer a lot. Everybody's going to want to kill you. <laughs> Welcome to the family of God. And, but how, uh, the next part I want to talk about today is how unpopular um, this confession is. Uh, and it, there's, an unse- there's seemingly an unending opposition to talking about Jesus being the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, the, son, the suffering servant Messiah, uh, not just in Acts and all throughout the New Testament world, but even today. The Council of Nicaea, 325. But even up, you say even today, yeah, let's go uh, a couple hundred years back in history, Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson is, by most scholars, the most intellectual, smartest person to ever be the President of the United States. But you can go to the uh, Congressional Library and you can go and find the Jefferson Bible. In the Jefferson Bible, Thomas Jefferson took a, a blade like you would shave your face with, a man's face, and he took, apparently, he had two Bibles front and back. He cut out everything through the Gospels that he didn't like. Everything supernatural, everything that had any mention of Jesus being the Messiah, the Son of God, anything like that. He cut it out and pasted it and published that. It wasn't very popular, but um, in 1820, he published a book entitled The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And Jefferson goes on, quote, he's a great moral man. He is the most excellent moral person. He sets the perfect example for humanity. He is a peacemaker. He's our example. He's the person we should follow as far as how we ought to live our life. And he goes through and, and uh, he talks about the morals of Jesus. But he, he points out many times in the book, he wants nothing to do with Jesus being the Messiah, the Son of God. He wants nothing to do with that. He wants to do with Jesus of Nazareth. You say, that's 200 years ago. Well, in the early 1990s um, was the Jesus Seminar held in California, um, led by Robert Funk. The Jesus Seminar in California it was liberal New Testament scholars. They got together, and they didn't have a razor blade. You can't make this up. They had marbles of different colors. And they took um, the four Gospels, and uh, they made their own Bible. And the way they did it was they had four different colored marbles. One marble would mean Jesus definitely didn't say that. Another color would mean, ah, he could have. Another color said he, you know, maybe he did say that. And then one, he definitely said that. So they take their notion of Jesus of Nazareth, a good moral peacekeeping, a good example, a good moral teacher, and they bring that understanding to the New Testament and the four Gospels, and they form what's called the Jesus Seminar Bible. You can find one of these. I wouldn't waste your money on it. But uh, there, it's there. And, and in this Bible, uh, they cut the whole Gospel of John out, of course. But uh, they created their Bibles. And that, you say, that was in the 1990s. Well, in 2013, there's a book. It was the bestseller list uh, by the New York Times. And still today, it was on the top ten when it came out. still a bestseller. It's called Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, the man who wrote the book, um, he, his whole thesis of the book, and it was a bestseller, okay? His whole thesis of the book is this, 
He had been a Christian for times, then he went to be a uh, Muslim for a time, and then a Buddhist. I mean, he had tried all different religions. But he comes back to be a follower of Jesus, and his whole thesis of the book is this. After researching Jesus, I became a much more devoted follower of Jesus of Nazareth, not Jesus Christ. How sly. He says that all throughout the book. He became a closer follower of Jesus of Nazareth, not Jesus the Christ. You say, well, that's, that's what outsiders believe about Jesus. Well, did you know in the year 2000, I was talking with uh, Mr. Roger White, and after the first service we talked about this, he was around and, and around a lot of these debates that took place in the Southern Baptist Convention over this issue. Who is Jesus? Is he just a historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth, or is he the Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God? In 2000, the Baptist Faith and Message, which is pretty much the Southern Baptist creed of what we believe as Southern Baptists, was revised to make it clear. And thank God the conservatives, Bible-believing preachers won the day that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. But it arose in our own convention. It is no doubt the most popular idea of who Jesus is outside of these four walls that we're sitting in today. Um, and today, what you've probably seen more than ever in 2020, if your eyes have been open to it, is the social gospel. People talking about Jesus all over social media, all over the news. But I promise you, the Jesus they're talking about is not Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah. The Jesus they refer to is Jesus of Nazareth. And here's how the gospel, they change it. They, change, they almost create a whole other religion. And here's how it goes. If Jesus, to them, since he's not um, God... He's not sovereign. He's not the judge, okay? He's not from God. He's not the Messiah. He's Jesus of Nazareth. He is a good teacher. He has excellent morals. He's a peacekeeper. Because they redefine that, the reason they do this is they can redefine sin. Sin is no longer what you have uh, transgressed before a holy God. Sin is only what you and I have done to each other in society and culture and cultural structures, and the way that we solve these cultural issues is through this peacemaker moral example of Jesus. And salvation is not one day you'll stand before God. Oh, no, all people will get to go to heaven. But it's salvation is how do we deal with these social problems through this peacemaker, through this example, through this good moral teacher. That is the popular notion of Jesus today. So how do we respond I want, to, I want to leave you today with five ways I believe we need to respond confessing that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the Messiah. Number one is this. We need not to demonize those who disagree with us. My friend, if you stand here today and you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the suffering servant who will one day come again and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords, if you believe that, you're in the small minority of Americans today, okay? You're a small minority. You, uh, and even churches across America, you're in the small minority. We need not to demonize others who disagree with us. What do you mean? We have a pattern in our society of demonizing anybody who disagrees with us on anything. We need not demonize them because why do they not truly understand who Jesus is? It's the same reason Saul, before he was um, on the road to Damascus, did not understand who Jesus was. It's the same reason the Sanhedrin didn't recognize. It's the same reason, really, the apostles didn't understand who Jesus was till after the resurrection. Namely, because they're blind. And you can't blame a blind man for being blind. You can't blame a blind man because he can't see. He's just blind. What we should do is have love and mercy and kindness toward them. 
And what we should do is attempt and, and make effort and be intentional about sharing the gospel. Because faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of God. And the word of God declares Jesus to be the son of God, God in the flesh, the Messiah. I saw a, uh, one of my friends brought this to my attention. Um, it was a Facebook post. Um, from there was people who were holding Democratic presidential signs in downtown 441. Uh, and you may have saw this. And I saw people on that post saying, I smoked them, I, I left exhaust in their face, I swerved at them, and all these different things. That's not Christian. It's not even close to what God has called us to. That's acting like the world. God, Paul said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We're not against people, we're for people. And we can disagree with people without being, uh, without being against them. We're not here to fight people. We're here for people to show them who Jesus is so that they can know about Jesus and hear the gospel and have an opportunity to go to heaven and have the peace and joy that you and I have. Let's not demonize those who disagree with us, but still hold firm to the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, number two, this, this demands us to be clear in our witness in our encounters with others. Because when we say Jesus in public, uh, there used to be a residue. I believe even in Maysville, Jackson County, Banks County, there used to be a residue of Orthodox Christianity. When you said the name Jesus, people used to understand you were talking about the same Jesus. But today, I promise you, uh, it's not there. You say, Chris, how do you know? I go to college campuses. We do. We go to different ones, UGA, North Georgia. We, North Georgia is mostly from people in this region. We ask them, who do they say Jesus is? Can I tell you the very less answer we get is Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. We get nothing close to that. It's not a popular belief in this area at all. When you say Jesus in public, they do not, they're not certain. They believe in a different Jesus than you do, my friend. So we have to clarify and be clear that we're talking about Jesus, the Son of God, not just the Jesus of Nazareth, but Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. So let us be clear. Uh, thirdly, let's be logical. I know that's an unpopular thing in our day, but it is needed. Think about it. So, so this social gospel, these people want to see Jesus as a great moral example and a great teacher. Well, what did Jesus teach? Who did Jesus teach that he was? I, I really like John chapter 8. When Jesus is he's telling the Jews, he said, If you uh, believe God and were children of God, you would receive me, his son. And they said, What are you talking about? We are children of God. We're children of Abraham. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. He claimed to be God right there. Uh, the, I am is, the, is Yahweh in the Old Testament. It's the Old Testament name of God. He claims to be God right there. And he goes on to tell him, before Abraham was, I am. And Abraham saw my day and was glad. <laughs> and, and he said, if you believe God, you'd believe me. If you heard God, you'd hear me and receive me. He said, but you're not children of Abraham. You're children of Satan. That's pretty tough, ain't it? <laughs> you're, you're children of the devil. But, um, in other words, let's be logical. If Jesus taught that he was God, and you say he's a good teacher, but you say what he taught is wrong, then he's not a good teacher, is he? See, C.S. Lewis is right. Either you have to confess that Jesus is Lord, and he is the Son of God, or he's a lunatic and he's a liar. You can't have both. You can't say he's just a good teacher because he taught very clearly all throughout the Gospels and the New Testament supports it, that he is the Son of God. So let's be logical. Um, Fourthly, I want to make this application. Let's stand for truth, not emotions. Uh, what do you mean emotions? Uh, let's, before I say this, listen. 
I, I'm for emotions. I believe we ought to worship God in spirit and truth. I mean, I believe we ought to be excited when we get to sing his name, when we get to praise him, when we get to live for him. I believe a Christian ought to have so much zeal and excitement, people don't know how to handle it. I mean, I believe in emotion. But, you know, we live in YouTube church world, don't we? Many of you will go home or through the week you'll watch other church services. The pandemic, I mean, churches, you can, you can watch any church service all over the world. Right now, there's probably people in other countries, we know that, that are listening to our church service. Thank God for that opportunity, right? But what I have found, because I live in the YouTube church world too, I like to see them all and see what's going on. But what has so hurt my heart, truly, is I watch so many churches online. And I, the most popular one, who is an SBC leader, a, a pastor, okay, um, get up and when he posts something, millions of views within an hour, and it's nothing but emotionalism for emotion. There's no truth. There's no substance. Um, let me give you a way you can find that out. Just to, I, I, I'm asking you to stand for truth, okay? This truth that Jesus is the Son of God, I want to argue, is the most important thing. It is the watershed thing for a Christian. But today I feel like we've tried to dumb our church members down, and America's tried to dumb us down by emotionalism, just getting heated and getting excited and passionate without no truth at all. You know how you can identify a church like that? The preacher gets up to preach, and they're playing music in the background trying to excite emotion from the crowd, as if the gospel and the word of God is not enough. We ought to stand for truth because of this next point. I said that the opposition to this confession that Jesus is the Son of God is seemingly unending. That it seems like it's, it, it comes up every, every year. There's a new opposition to it, and it will continue. But one day it will end. The Bible says it's appointed for every man to die, and then the judgment. You know the Bible says the judge is? Jesus. Jesus. And that day, the question, who do you say Jesus is? The answer, how you've answered that question before you died and what you did with it will be the most important thing. And Jesus just being the Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus just being a historical figure, Jesus just being a good moral example and a good teacher is not the right answer. Friend, that will send everyone who hears that and believes that to a devil's hell. We must confirm that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is Lord. Isn't that what Romans 10, 9 says? Romans 10, 9 says, if you will believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and confess Him as Lord, you shall be saved. That's the gospel. And you don't have a gospel without Jesus being the Messiah, the Son of God. Um, I like... Uh, what Neil Armstrong, remember Neil Armstrong, he was uh, the first American to go to the moon. And uh, interviewers, when he got back, asked him, said, Neil, what was you thinking up there when you, were, when you got to see the earth and you just got to see all the space? What was going through your mind? I love Neil's response. He, would say, he said, I was thinking that this ship was created by the lowest bidder. <laughs> I was thinking that this ship was supposed to get me home from outer space was, was made by the lowest bidder. That's uh, it's pretty good. And I think about our salvation. I think about what we have in Jesus. God didn't look around heaven and say, that little angel over there, I ain't seen him in a while. That one over there, I don't really, I don't like him that much. No, I mean, he, he didn't just pick anybody to come to earth to redeem us, did he? The Bible says that we are not redeemed by silver and gold. That was, First Peter said, that was passed down by your forefathers. Rather, we were redeemed by the precious Lamb of God without blemish or spot. We were not redeemed by the less bitter. We were redeemed by the very best, God in human flesh, Jesus, the Messiah. Would you bow your head and pray with me?
this morning, uh, my prayer all week that was a couple things, but perhaps that there would be someone who would hear the word of God this morning, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And in that hearing that, your eyes would be open to who he is, God in the flesh, and that he died on the cross for you. He bore your penalty and that he rose again. This morning, if your eyes have been open to that truth, the Bible says what you must do is believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You have to confess him as Lord. That means you have to deny yourself as Lord. You have to deny your sins and yourself. Repent and turn to God with loyalty and allegiance. That's what biblical faith is. Turning from your sin and turning to Jesus with loyalty and allegiance. This morning, if you're willing to do that, you can pray a prayer like this. Father, I understand that my sins deserve death. And I understand that the Son of God bore my sins on the cross. And I believe that he rose again three days later. And Lord, right now I'm willing to turn from my sin, turn from myself, and turn to you. I want to be loyal to you. I pledge my allegiance to you. Thanks for listening. As a pastor, my primary concern is your eternity. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, that you can know where you will spend eternity. I would love to connect with you and talk more about your walk of faith. You can email and find more information about the ministry of Maysville Baptist Church on our website. Just type maysvillebaptist.net in your search engine. Also, you can support this ministry through our website or by mailing your gift to 8875 Highway 82 Spur Road, Maysville, Georgia. 30558. God bless you, and I hope you tune in next week where once again we turn our hearts towards the Word of God.